Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show seeks to unravel the dynamic world of research at the university by discussing the significance to and benefits of research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio, 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queen's Radio in Kingston, located in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University Research website at queensu.ca slash research. Today, my guest is John Small. John Small is the Canada Research Chair in Environmental Change at Queen's and a renowned a world-renowned paleolimnologist, and you're going to tell us what that is, right? right, right okay. Yes. <laughs> he has conducted studies around the world on the impacts of humans on the, ar- on the environment with a particular focus on the Arctic. He's received over 60 awards for his research, teaching, and outreach, including Officer of the Order of Canada and the Northern Science Award. John, thank you very much for being with me on Blind Date with Knowledge. My pleasure. Let's begin our conversation by having you explain to me and our listeners what paleolimnology is and why it's important to the average Canadian. Yeah, well, it's a mouthful, but I'll start <laughs> by saying limnology is the study of lakes and rivers or inland water. So it's sort of the inland side of oceanography that perhaps people are more familiar with. And paleolimnology is the study of history of lakes and rivers, uh, much like paleoceanography that, again, most listeners may be a little more familiar with. So uh, lakes are quite important parts of our ecosystems. I mean, without water, we can't have life. But lakes are quite quite remarkable in many respects. And one of the things is they record a history. All around us, we have lakes, and they're passively recording the history of what happened in the lake and around the lake. And that's because the history is contained in the sediments. Slowly, 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year, sediments are accumulating at the bottom of a lake. And that that sediment is like a history book or a library of information of what happened in that lake and outside the lake. So it's mainly looking at fossils and chemical signals. And we can date these sediments. Most lakes around Ontario, for example, go back about 12,000 years since the last ice age. So we can go back, see how the lakes have changed since the lake formed in the ice age, or more likely in some of the things we might be talking about here today. What is about the last 200 years of lake history or when human impacts were a significant factor? Using this types of information, we can sort of disentangle the effects of humans versus natural processes. I mean, climate change is an example. There's natural reasons climate change, but there's also human-linked changes. And that's one of the biggest challenges we have with ecological or environmental research. We don't have the long-term monitoring data, the direct monitoring data, to show what were conditions like before humans were a major factor. And without that, it's very hard to say humans were the cause or so on and so forth. So what we do is we provide the missing data sets on especially how water quality or water quality related variables have changed due to natural and human results. And, and I think it's a, quite a powerful tool. One of the things that uh, you just mentioned about the uh, the sort of the time frame kind of surprised me. You said uh, 12,000 years, I think you said that seems so young by by yeah, geological, you know, what is it, 4 billion years yeah, that the planet's been around? Yeah, so it's, yes, exactly. Uh, lakes are actually fairly temporary features, especially in a place like Canada. Remember, uh, 
this building about, you know, 18,000 years ago, not that long ago, would have had a kilometer or two of ice on it. We were in the middle of the Ice Age. Again, example of a well-understood natural climate change. We understand why that happened. But we were under ice. There was no lake here. Uh, the legacy of all the lakes you see in large parts of Canada, the northern United States, as well as northern Europe and other regions, is a legacy of the last Ice Age. When it started warming, the massive ice sheets started retreating back to where they are now, like on Greenland and perhaps parts of Ellesmere Island and the high Arctic. And the legacy of that was these these massive ice sheets that you know sort of excavated the land, and left these basins, which now filled with partly with ice water, <laughs> and uh, the lakes we now go fishing and swimming in is actually a legacy of the last ice age. So yes, twelve thousand years is not that long period of time. We have some lakes, for example, in Africa, other parts of the world, we go back much much farther. But by and large, most lakes in Canada are twelve thousand years or less. Would the Great Lakes have the same kind of a yes, profile the, compared to the Northern Lakes? Yes, the the Great Lakes also were under ice, so they're they're also uh, a relatively young, uh, relatively young feature. And it's all relative when you talk about time frames. I talk about you know decades to my colleagues, colleagues, and they think, oh my, that's an enormously long time frame. For me, decades is not a long time frame. Yeah, but for a lot of people, it is. Yeah, you know, I'm going to deviate from my 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 uh, questions here. I read recently about. Um, I think it was a lake. It might have been a river near Hudson's Bay or James Bay. And there was ice that had been, uh, I guess, holding the water back. And, and the ice eventually melted and um, the, it caused the water course to change. Do you know what, what I'm referring uh, certainly to? Certainly, there are many places in the Arctic where water courses are changing uh, that can be linked to climate change. They are, they have been uh, farther north. They've been what are called ice-dammed lakes mm -hmm. uh, and ice-dammed uh, water bodies. Uh, and uh, what happens is, uh, and this is especially true in farther north, though, than Hudson's Bay, where you have uh, ice that's been there for some time, and it's, it's dammed water behind it. So it's called an ice-dammed lake. Now with warming... That ice is disappearing, the dam disappears, and out goes the water. So you're almost forming a new river or you're flooding different right. areas. But that's happening also. Uh, permafrost is uh, thawing in certain regions. That's either forming lakes or collapsing lakes in different ways. That's a very complex situation, permafrost. But you can probably see that visually in some highways that are now you know, all need work because the they were built on what they thought was permafrost, permanently right. frozen. It's not permanently frozen anymore. Well, this rapid uh, sh condensing of the of the time cycle of of the uh, characteristics, the life cycle of a of a lake or a mm -hmm. river. Uh, it's got to have some public policy impacts if there's going to be humans nearby in terms of economic development, but also in terms of uh, safety issues. Well, there's all sorts of issues, yeah. And I mean, uh, often the often the th those tend to be sort of ca what we call catastrophic of events, and that do make headlines. But on reality, uh, most of the changes we're seeing are much subtler. What I prefer under the radar, you only you can only see them if you look at decades and decades of data, and that's where a lot of people have difficulty with. They tend to see things from year to year, but you almost have to see things for decades and decades. So, for example, the Hudson. Bay Area is warming now very, very quickly. Uh, we know we hear about polar bears and things like that, but also it's affecting the fish populations. I mean, there are fish that are adapted to cold, high oxygen waters, and now these lakes are changing fundamentally in characteristics, and some of these fish are in trouble. Just as one example, you mentioned Hudson's Bay. So the lakes around Hudson's Bay, there's some good documented evidence showing that. So often it's more subtler changes uh, that are, over long term, are very, very serious. When you do your research, are you approaching it from, I would think, probably mostly a, a biological perspective or a geological perspective, but there's got to be 
enormous public policy consequences of the work that you're doing. Are you taking that into consideration or is that just sort of you'll let the policymakers deal with your research yes. as it so, develops? So that's a good point. I mean, there is there is science and there's policy. Mm-hmm. And my view is science is should be a major part of the policy-making, decision-making process. So I think it's important to keep the two somewhat separate, but you can still inform policy. I do not go into a project saying, I'm going to come up with a policy analysis on this. That's not my job because that is just one of the key, one of the factors that goes into policymaking. That is not to say that once we have policy-relevant results that are published in the scientific peer-reviewed literature and I'm interviewed on it and I'm asked as a citizen at this point, what do you think the policy implications are? I think I'm allowed talking about that as a private citizen. But I, I think it is important to keep science and policy separate but make sure the policymakers get the information First, get the information. Second, get in an information that is useful to them, not necessarily simply in a scientific publication that, frankly, only some experts can understand. So there is this part of my job, I believe, is science communication or, or policy information translation. Mm-hmm. I'm get, making up new words as I go along here. But, but that's something we haven't been very good at, though I think my lab has been, uh, you know, trying to do that in, in a very, you know, very significant way. But I think we have to keep doing that. After all, it's uh, taxpayers who have paid for the uh, much of the science we do anyway. Certainly my science is not really funded by industry. I, you can assure you that. So um, it, it's funded by and large by the taxpayers' purse. And it's a responsibility, I think, of scientists that even once they do their main job, where they might prefer it as the main job, of getting that information out in the peer-reviewed scientific literature, to also provide some translation, information translations to policymakers and the public at large. I think that's a terrific point, the that connection between the general public and the people that are affected by and, and to some degree support the research. There needs to be, a, I think, a strong connection. And I think you're, what you're doing and uh, the people that work with you seem to be at the leading edge of that. Yes, well, I think it's important. And I try and, you know... It- make my students understand it as well. It's, it's, it, there's a lot of excuses not to do it. <laughs> I, I've talked to colleagues. Uh, there's a lot of excuses. And, uh, and you know, some are very legitimate. So scientists are, scientists, professors are very busy people. I think, you know, but I think some people still have this vision of a professor sitting in their, you know, chair with a pipe, you know, we can't have a pipe now, or, you know. I mean, uh, the day is very, very full, very multi, uh, a lot of, lot of things going on. And is one of the big excuses, I just don't have time to do that. Well, I think that's, uh, uh, that's, that's a that's a that's a problem, um, but uh, you know I think we have to make time. Or and and there are significant changes in society. Even the way we get funded, there are now usually typically when we apply for grant proposals, we're even asked how are you making this information available to the public at large. So there has been a shift towards that, but it's it is extra effort. And but I think it's important. Let's end this uh, particular segment of uh, of our interview with a question con- connected to public policy. Kind of based on your research, what are your two top recommendations to Canadian public policymakers regarding human impact on the Arctic? So if we're specifically talking about the Arctic, I would remind them that about half of Canada's landmass and two-thirds of our coastlines in the Arctic. So even though there's not many voters up there, they're very important, <laughs> northern peoples largely, uh, that is a very important part of real estate that we have stewardship over. So we have to take it seriously and we have to, we do, we cannot ignore it. And I think there's positive signs going towards that direction. I think the second thing I would say is uh, use the 
evidence that we have. And I think uh, a, a good excuse often for po uh, politicians is, well, that that isn't certain enough for us to make policy. And I say, look, at a certain point, uh, you have to start realizing that you use at least the same criteria on the environment as used for like economics. There's major economic decisions made, I would say, on far less data than environmental decisions. And it's very easy to say we don't have the final answer. We'll never have the final answer. But on many of these topics, we have certainly way more data than, than, than we need to make firm policy decisions. Well said. You seem to have really thought through your argument and, and speak with a passion. I think uh, you, you already are making a big difference, and I think uh, you're demonstrating that you'll continue to make a, a big difference. Thank you. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio, 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queen's Radio in Kingston, located in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University Research website at queensu.ca slash research. My guest in this episode is John Small, Canada Research Chair in, in Environmental Change at Queen's. One of the goals for Blind Date with Knowledge is to demystify scholarly research and to personalize researchers. As a way of making that goal real for us, I ask every guest on the show to tell us a joke, recite a short poem, or insp inspirational quotation, or reference a song related to the research or the researcher's motivation. So, John, let's uh, hear what you have to say in that regard. Well, I went to the latter of a quotation, I thought an inspirational quotation, and one that's very close to what we just talked about. And it comes from the late uh, U.S. Senator from New York, Daniel Moynihan, who I think many of their listeners will know as a known diplomat, statesman, and, and politician. And the quote I always liked from him was, everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not to his own facts. And I think that's very relevant today as we see how, you know, we live in a world of alternate facts and, and a recent survey showing how people think science is just a matter of opinion. I think it's important to get that across. That's uh, in, in science, opinion doesn't mean too much. Data matter. And if you don't like the data, that is not really part of the argument. If you find something wrong with the data, something wrong with the methodology, something wrong with the conclusions, that is certainly what we do as the give and take of science. The oxygen that drives science forward is criticism. But not liking the information is not a reason to dispel it or j just discard it. It's not a matter of opinion. We deal with data and we have to deal with methodologies and there are independent ways to assess that. But if you don't like what a scientist finds, it's not an opinion. It's simply what they found. Connected with that, and this maybe will be our, our final uh, little conversation, is this must have some feeling for you about uh, the public policy direction about reducing spending or reducing financial support for scientific research, both here in Canada and in the United States. You want to comment on that? Yeah, certainly. I, one of the best investments I think you can have is in research and science in general. And I think uh, we have to stop talking about the cost of research. It's like talking about, to me, the cost of education. Hmm. It's not a cost. It's an investment. And any analysis that you look at shows that it's typically a good investment, especially environmental data. Uh, there's many analyses you can point to. Like we talk about environmental monitoring. Oh, monitoring costs money to environment. There's been so many analyses of this. The cheapest thing to know is if you have a problem and then to deal with it. Dealing with it after the fact is always more expensive and often some things you cannot fix. Nature is slow to pardon our mistakes, to be honest. Some mistakes can't be corrected after the fact and they're there forever. So uh, knowing what the problem is, is the cheapest and most effective way to dealing with it. And that's true of human health, health as well. You know, we can use the health analogy. I mean, it's often best to know if you have a medical problem developing than after you really have the full problem and having to deal with it. Same with the environment. Thank you, John. 
My guest in this episode of Blind Date with Knowledge has been John Small, Canada Research Chair in Environmental Change at Queen's. If you have a question about anything related to research that you'd like discussed by our guests, or if you have comments about today's conversation with John Small, please email me, Barry Kaplan, at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thank you for tuning in. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.